UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? Oh, I remember man. when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. <laughs> and he rips him down, he puts him in his seat, and he looks at him and goes, that was fucking hilarious, but you really just got to shut up. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Joining you from my apartment in New York City, this is Curry Hicks Sage, a solo episode tonight. We'll send it over to the great Bennett Carroll to do the production on and hopefully get this baby out in the next couple of days. It is Monday, August 19th, 2019. We're just 11 days removed from the end of of the UMass Rutgers game. It should be ending right around this time. 11 days from now, we'll have our first indication of what the Walt, excuse me, Walt Bell era brings. Lots to talk about tonight. We'll try to get this up, you know, with sufficient time so that we can maybe do a Rutgers football preview uh, the night before, or, you know, like the week of the game. I'd like to get somebody from Rutgers on. If you have anyone you know of, let me know. As we did last year, the deal with football podcasts is we'll do them until the team is so insufferably awful that we can't bear to do them anymore, which could, if we're being candid, come after week two or three, or it could come week six, or you never know if they're, you know, sort of in bowl contention, which I really doubt is going to be the case, we could go into the hoop season. Uh, Although, realistically, by the time hoop starts, like November 5th, we won't really be talking football at that point, unless the team is unusually good. Anyway, tonight's episode brought to you by the great folks at Five College Movers. Are you moving? Are you moving back to campus? Are you moving away from campus? Are you moving in the Western Mass area to anywhere else. Call Five College Movers, fivecollegemovers.com. Stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Check them out today. And great friends, not only of the UMass Basketball Podcast, but also of UMass Athletics. So we like to support people who support the things we like. Do that. All right, I... Rather impromptu last night said I was going to do an episode that was effectively a full mailbag episode because on the last episode, which dropped, I don't know, three, four days ago, five days ago, uh, with the great Zach is God, Zach Emery, we basically just went all in on UMass football, on a UMass football preview for like an hour and 45 minutes. My audio was then fucked up. Fortunately, he had saved his. I sounded not great. He sounded pretty clear. But the point is, it was such a long and thorough episode that we didn't get to the mailbag. And the episode prior to that was with Bob McGovern, uh, founder of the Maroon Musket and uh, a great writer in the Boston area and UMass alum uh, on that episode was on realignment. We, I don't think we did a mailbag there either. So we haven't really done a comprehensive mailbag in a while. Oh no, maybe we no, I think maybe that episode we had like a short one at the end, but we haven't talked hoops in a, in a substantive way since 
the last day in April, I believe. Oh, no, no. Maybe even because the, the April, late April episode was was the A.J. Doyle episode. So in many ways, we've had like three football-related episodes in a row, and we haven't done a comprehensive hoops one since probably like mid-April. A ton of shit's happened since then, and we want to get to all that. And my hope is that uh, at least, you know, the questions themselves will kind of serve to get us talking about the various hoop-related happenings of the last, I mean, gosh, the off-season is so fucking long. It's been five five months now, a little, little more than five months since that fateful Thursday afternoon at the Barclays Center when UMass lost in overtime to a equally woeful George Washington team. Um, and we, I sat through it with some stalwarts from the UMass Twitter sphere. Shout out to Kevin Glazer, R. Sitchman, Eric Friedlander, uh, the great Stu Ludicky, a couple, a couple others. We just sat there about 20 rows up just knowing that that was the last time we would be watching a UMass basketball game for a while deep in our hearts. But anyway, let's go to the mailbag and just see what comes up and kind of take it from there. So I am going to go to my Twitter page and see what y'all were asking last night. Let me see here. Okay, so let's go to the first question, and that is from the great R. Sitchman, true friend of the program, true friend of UMass basketball in general. Sitchman, as I've said at, at great length on this podcast, he travels, I would guess, more than any single UMass fan to watch the team play. He takes more robust road trips than anyone in the fan base. So shout out to Sitch. He asks, who's in contention for starting five? Are we really going to be able to press? Carl 3.0 is going to be real good, right? All right. That's three questions. Let's take them one by one. And these are three good ones to open the show because I think that in many ways they sort of uh, set the stage for where we're at and it gives us the opportunity to, you know, it gives me the opportunity to share some of the things that um, I've heard in the off season and kind of uh, just in general assess, you know, where things are at. So starting five, locks. Starting at the five, freshman, top 100 ESPN recruit, Trey Mitchell, he's your starting center. I don't think there's any real questions about that. Starting at the four, Cy Chapman. All accounts are that he has really improved his game in the offseason, and the ability to move him to the four, which is a more natural position for him, will be terrific. Combine that with his elite athleticism, which we saw you know, real shades of late in the year, and a full offseason to get his body right and his mind right just in terms of the making the jump from freshman to sophomore year. I've grown, I'm growing increasingly confident that he certainly has what it takes to make that uh, often, you know, that, that, that common jump you see where a guy goes from sort of, you know, a, a, a evolving role player to a real deal A-10 contributor between the freshman and sophomore year. Plus, he's very young, if I'm not mistaken. So he was really like just turned 18 at the start of um, at the start of his freshman year. So, you know, I fully expect that he's going to make a huge jump 
and or at least you know he has the tools to, and I'm excited to see that. So there's those are your two bigs. Carl Pierre is obviously a starter. That's your two guard. Your three, I think, you know, I know he just had, a, 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 I believe, some sort of modest procedure, but he's said to be healthy. Um, Samba Diallo, I think, is ready to make that jump and sort of be your three if you want to go long, go with length and, and play big. Um, and then your one, who's really a one slash two and not necessarily a pure point guard, it, although he showed signs of, of being capable in that role, is Keon Clairgo, who had a really solid end of season last year and was pretty solid at the one, actually, for stretches. Now, he's not a pure point guard, and there are two freshmen who have who are here, Sean East and Colton, Mitch, uh, Colton Mitchell. Yeah, Colton Mitchell. And both of those guys will get substantive minutes. And, and John Bugs, a third freshman point guard, the word on the street is that he has been much better in many ways than expected and, and will compete right away for minutes at the one. I think he may or may not have just sustained some sort of modest injury, if I heard correctly. Um, so all three of those freshmen are going to get minutes. The guy I'm hearing the best things about with respect to immediate playing time, and I want to I caveat that by saying immediate playing time as in, if the season were to open today, or a lot can happen between that point, you know, between now and then. But the, the guy I'm hearing a really high praise for in terms of current collegiate readiness is Sean East, who was a late signee uh, from, I believe, South Carolina. Um, 6'3", lefty, crafty, can get to the rim can play, you know, off the pick and pop and can shoot the ball and has an edge. The word is he, you know, he's kind of got an edge. And and I, and I think he's the most college ready right now. So by year's end, I would not be surprised if he was garnering the bulk of the minutes at the one, which doesn't mean that Keon wouldn't start. Uh, it just might mean that Keon slots in and plays that combo guard that he's more accustomed to. So he'll get the minutes of a starter. Uh, and, and I don't, you know, I think on, a, on some level who's starting doesn't particularly matter um, because, you know, with this group, I think you're going to have a lot of ev- relatively even minutes, particularly at the outset of the season where guys are, you know, sort of finding themselves and their roles. Um, I think that uh, TJ Weeks, son of Tyrone, of course, and uh, another Woodstock Academy guy who came in, you know, with Tony Bergeron, the assistant. He will play a ton as a freshman. Um, shades of Carl Pierre, from what I'm hearing, um, loves to play, competes really hard, and is just getting better and better. Um, I think he missed a bunch of maybe his like junior year of high school, and so. That's why some of the recruiting attention was a little late coming for him. But he was in the mix of some other A-10 programs, and I, and I think he's going to be really good here. So um, those, I guess, seven guys I think will get starter-like minutes if I had to guess right now. But there's – but but like DeGiri Baptiste, you know, he's going to get a bunch of minutes. And um, – you know, he, he's a veteran, right? Like, I mean, he can he can play a ton. And, and, and you know, if guys get in foul trouble, he will play a bunch. Um, 
Preston Santos. There's a lot of you know people very high on, on his performance thus far. And then I think guys like um, you know uh, Colton Mitchell, who you know who's from Florida, point guard. He's gonna get an opportunity to prove himself. Um, it, it's just you know so so there's a bunch of guys who could who could be in the mix. I'm probably forgetting someone. Um, but that's that's sort of my prediction. I think that the, the five I mentioned with kind of Sean East as a you know starter like minutes, uh, you know at by eh, you know by conference play. I think if I had to guess now, but there's a lot of questions that you know, and I don't I don't say questions in a in a negative way. I'm, I'm very curious because I think there's like these guys are competing for for playing time, and all of them are going to have ample opportunity to prove themselves. And I think this trip right now that they're on in um, the Virgin Islands, and I believe they play tomorrow, uh, will, will, you know, help give us some indication as to, you know, who's kind of game ready. And, and it'll be very helpful for the team to get that time. And plus they've gotten extra practices. I think NCAA rules provide like 10 extra practices. So it'll be very interesting to see. So Sitch's second question, he says, are we really going to be able to press uh, I, I believe unequivocally yes. Um, Tony Bergeron at Woodstock Academy, you know, the new assistant, he's a big press guy. They're putting in some of his presses from what I'm hearing. And uh, McCall, if I'm not mistaken, pressed a lot in his first year at Chattanooga when they were very successful. So in his first year at UMass, he couldn't because he just didn't have personnel. And then let's be honest, last year with all the injuries – and the fact that you had Rayshon Holloway, a press is just a difficult thing to pull off. And then, you know, I think there was just some, you know, questionable effort stuff at times that also made pressing difficult. And and now I just think that the team is just loaded with personnel who are suited to pressing. There's a lot of what I would describe as length and strength on this team. I think, um, I think that you know, like a guy I forgot to mention, C.J. Jackson, for instance, he's a guy who could get a lot of minutes. His talent, by all accounts, is very good. And, you know, he's just sort of getting there from a physicality standpoint. But he's another late signee who, by all, you know, he's like 6'5", 6'6". He can, he's sort of a combo guard. He can, he can play, you know, he can dribble. He can, he's got great length. So, so a guy like that on the press, weeks on the press, Santos on the press. There's a lot of length there and guys who can, you know, get in passing lanes and, and make things difficult for opponents. Sean East has, you know, some of that length. Um, so that'll be really, really exciting. And then, you know, you, you know, you already know that Keon is a ball hawk. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm very excited to see a, a very frequently pressing team. And also I think the fact that this is a team that has a lot of I don't want to say completely interchangeable pieces, but there's a lot of guys in this roster that it's not like there's a huge chasm in ta- between in terms of talent. And so you can throw a lot of pieces in the mix and, and try a lot of different combinations and take one guy on, take one guy off. It's almost like hockey style uh, substitution patterns at points. Um, and, and, you know, you can you can keep a DeGiri. I don't exactly know the technical components of what the presses will look like, but I would imagine you can keep a guy like DeGiri back who's a rim protector, and that allows you to take some chances in terms of, you know, forcing steals and 
things like that. So I'm definitely eager to see what they'll do um, pressing, and I think it'll be a a, a very um, kind of core piece of their defensive identity, but a defensive identity that you know I, I hope will lead to offense because I don't have the data on this, but I suspect that last year this basketball team had fewer easy buckets and just like uncontested layups than any team in the history of collegiate basketball. I'm obviously being hyperbolic, but it just felt like they could, they had to work so hard for every fucking bucket. And I think that that is going to be one of the biggest changes this year. Uh, despite the, you know, relative inexperience, I think that that will be something you see improvement in. Final question. Carl 3.0 is going to be real good, right? So this is referring to Carl Pierre in his junior year. I fully expect him to be terrific. Um, I've said, I think, on another podcast that if he's if he's scoring 20 a night, we might be in trouble, right? Because I think if he's shouldering so much of the load, it means that we're not getting the requisite number of touches we need to be to Trey Mitchell down low to and to and to sigh to sigh to some extent down low and to samba slashing and to 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 Keon penetrating and to you know weeks um and santos and and jackson slashing as well so you know i don't really want carl to be like the like a completely ball dominant scorer in a certain sense for if we're going to be good but i think you know, you can run a lot of stuff for him. He's going to hit shots for you. I'm very curious to see what he's what he's able to do off the dribble this year. That's a part of his game that he improved a lot as a sophomore. And when he, I think particularly in some of those games after Pipkins had, you know, sort of was, you know, hung it up for the season when Carl became, you know, there was a game maybe against like, I want to say like maybe George Mason where he was like 10 for 20. Like I liked those nights. But I and I want to see him do that if necessary. But I also think like we can we need to get easy looks for Trey Mitchell down low. You know, eight or nine or ten of those looks a game. Not to say he'll make all of them, but um, so yeah. Like I, and and I think Carl is such a team guy that he's he's he understands these things. And if he gets twenty in the flow of the offense, and he's like had some of those nights he had freshman year, you know, where he's like seven for nine from three like that's fucking amazing we like those are like some of the most enjoyable you know performances by a UMass player in some time and and I hope we get a bunch of them but I don't want to be overly reliant on him particularly because he's still not um he's not and I say this almost in a positive way but he's not like a Dante Clark or somebody who has to dribble the ball 75 times before getting a shot off and, and sort of ends up going like, you know, eight for 21. Like he's an efficient scorer. And so I, I would like prefer to see him remain efficient and continue to play in the flow of the offense than, you know, um, than to sort of catch and, and dribble, 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 um, and then, you know, get a shot off. So good questions from Sitch. Okay, UMass fan 33 says, recruiting, player development, in-game coaching, how do you rank the three in terms of importance at the mid-major level? Good question. 
what would your ideal coach be in terms of that mix if you have 10 points to pass out over the three skills? Build your own coach. This is a great, great hypothetical. And I, and I, I go back and forth on it a lot, but he did qualify by saying at the mid-major level. And caveat before I answer the, the hypothetical. The A-10 is in a kind of weird nether region where they're like a little bit above what I would consider a mid-major, unless we're still talking in terms of low majors. Do we say low major? Because it now feels like the term mid-major has come to encompass like everything outside of the power five. So if you, if you term mid-major as everything outside the power five, then I'm going to say the A-10 is like well above a lot of stuff. But if you term mid-major as just like genuinely mid-major and all those teams that get like 16, 15, 14, 13 seeds are low major, then the A-10 could qualify as a mid-major. So let's just say it's like, so so let's just say it's A-10 level. So like the kind of like seven, just outside the high majors, like the 70th to 100th type programs of the 350 or so in D1 when we're answering the question. I believe... Player development slash culture, which I think is, you know, like those are, you know, just cultivating that team culture is probably, well, no, like, let's be honest, all things considered, recruiting is always the most important. You have to get players. You got to get players. But like you could get 150 to 175 range talent and make and, and make them, you know, 75 to 100 talent with the better player development. So I guess actually at the mid-major level, I'm going to say four for um, four points for uh, for mid-major for for culture and 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 whatever it is. No, fuck it. No, yeah, four, four. Ah, eh, like I'll say. Okay, I'll say four, four and a half actually. Then three and a half for recruiting. So that gets you to eight and then two for in-game. But you could argue like maybe in-game is like even a little less because if you have a great culture and you have great player development, then and you and you have quality recruits, then like they're going to win. And at that point, you're really down to like a few decisions But conversely, like, if a guy, like, I I feel like there's, I don't know, I have, like, analytics on this, but if you develop talent super well, pretty good chance you're going to make the right in-game decisions because it just means that you, like, have a philosophy, you have a plan, you kind of know what the fuck you're doing. So it's, but so I would say, like, four and a half for development, three and a half for recruiting, and two for for in-game. But boy, we, we all know, like, because Kellogg's mix was probably like seven for recruiting, you know, like three for development and like zero for in-game. And, and yet that got us some 20 plus win seasons. So it's like worth noting that that, that kind of speaks to the importance of recruiting. You can't have bad recruiting and like great in-game coaching and, and, and expect to win a too many games, right? So it's... It's a really good question. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of like 
like if you think of the best, like Mark Schmidt at St. Bonaventure, who I think is maybe the best co- coach in the league. Well, Bob McKillop at Davidson, but both those guys I would say are like, like, yeah, no, I mean, well, they're they're kind of even, like they do them all well, but they're not great recruiters because they don't like that's not they, they're mostly they're like five recruiters. This is a real endless rant. I'm sorry for those who are not with me right now, but it's like five for recruiting. No, no, sorry. Five for development, like three for recruiting, and two for in-game. But part of it is like you recruit guys who you know you can develop. So in a certain sense, it's about finding those kids. And then it's like, you know, like, I don't know. That's about the best I can do. UMass Twitter, that's his actual handle. He asks, a little bit of a recycled topic here, but you're outside-the-box idea to get more students to watch the games. Well, I don't know if winning is an outside-the-box idea, although in recent years it's it feels like win, winning has become an outside-the-box idea. Uh, that's obviously the biggest... You know, this gets into the realm of... This can quickly get into the realm of gimmickry, and I don't know that I, like really have strong opinions on this i mean yeah everyone's on their cell phone so like make sure the wi-fi is good but then you look tacky because you're like oh come to the game the wi-fi is good and it's just like why are you advertising for people to look at their phones when they're at the game you know there's a lot of talk at the pros i guess about like bringing some like in-game gambling experiences which would be kind of cool but you can't really do that on a college campus there they have beer now um, I think you can emphasize that more. I think there could be some fun, like, just, like, get people in the door with food stuff. Like, how much money are you really making on food anyway? Try to make it more of, like, a break-even deal and give some deals out like they do at minor league baseball parks. And UMass has done that. Um, t-shirts always play. Like, let's be honest. T-shirts always play. But they, like, shouldn't give them out until, like... 10 minutes into the second half or something. And then, or maybe even like, yeah, I was going to say you don't get them until the, you leave the arena, but then it sort of defeats the purpose because it's like if you um, you want you kind of want like a whiteout night or whatever. I think those sorts of things are fun. I don't know how outside the box it is, like the whiteout night stuff and like fun T-shirts. Um, like, <laughs> this is really weird, but <laughs> this is my fucking weird... Kids wouldn't even like this. This is my weird shit. You ever see the music video for Rick Astley, like, never gonna give you up? There's, like, ten outfit changes and just, like, preposterous outfit. Or maybe not any outfit changes, but there's just all these, like, amazing 80s outfits. I would have Rick Astley night where you have to dress like that movie. Uh, That's incredibly niche. I don't even know why I got that idea. I was just watching the video recently, and I was like, damn, these outfits are fire. Uh, So that would be cool. But, like, that's just my, that's, like, party of one. You know, it's just a sage idea. Uh, the Maroon Pants Day was awesome and very authentic. I think some of this stuff is, like, see where the students are at. I mean, like, let's be honest. And I'm sorry I'm having a few chips right now to uh, the frequent detractors of my uh, eating on this show. Uh, eat shit. Uh, anyway, what I was saying was, what was I saying? 
I don't really know where I was going with that. Oh, promotions. So, uh, but yeah, I lost my train of thought as I started consuming these potato chips. But, um, yeah, like, I was going to say, oh, I know what I was going to say. Look, like, undergrads, they're obsessed with barstool, like it or hate it. You know, that's that would drive an insane number of people there if you did barstool-related shit. It's tricky for a variety of reasons. The optics are, you know, fraught because of the administration and blah, blah, blah. But that is a thing that would, you know, drive it. I would love to get some, uh, this is really outside the box now. Cannabis now legal in Massachusetts. Get the cannabis community involved. Kind of, um, you know, mix it up with them. Maybe some edible giveaways. Again, this is not going to play on a collegiate campus. It's just, it's not, but since we're talking outside the box. Could you imagine if there was like, like, you know, in, uh, was a, uh, was a Dave Chappelle movie, you know, like the great weed movie, but man, I'm not how high that was a method man movie, but the other one, you know, the great weed movie with Dave Chappelle. Anyway, remember when they go out and like, they give people samples of their weed and like, then everybody starts calling them. You should, some weed company should give samples at, at a UMass game. You got, you said outside the box. This is just me thinking outside the box. All right. Let's see. Zach is God. Are any of the new kids good at three-pointers? Yes. TJ Weeks can flat out shoot the rock. Really good shooter. Lefty. I believe Preston Santos is a pretty good three-point shooter, too. Also a lefty. But in terms of just spot-up, knock-down three-point shooters, um, you know, that are of the new guys... Uh, I would definitely say Weeks is your is your guy. And uh, CJ Jackson, I think a little bit maybe, but like, and, and Bugs maybe a bit too, but the guy we're looking for, you know, at least one to two threes a game. So like, yeah, like one and a half threes a game is, uh, is Weeks for sure. Really good shooter. Can hit it from the corner too. Um, all right. UMassFan33 has another question. He says, is a deep three or a dunk cooler? I think a contested deep three or even a deep three uncontested that's like, is actually a lot cooler. Now, a great dunk, like a unique McLean often inbounds against Dayton dunk is obviously better. But run of the mill, like big man, you know, like on a breakaway, like gets a dunk, like, all right, like, whatever. I think a, th- a big three can, like, really change momentum as well, uh, more. Um, Borges, John Borges, J. Borges 17 says, Thoughts on the new rules, specifically the three-point line. Also, Santos shoots like Antoine Walker and missed about 0.03s in practice. Thoughts? Well, that answers uh, Zach is God's question. And... I don't know much about the new rules. I guess they moved the three-point line back a bit. Um, oh, wait. Did they move it in? No, wait. They moved it back a little bit. I don't think it dramatically changes things. I, I think um, – I haven't given it a great deal of thought, but I, I don't think it's going to dramatically change things for this for this particular team. I think Carl will still benefit. Um, I mean, it probably, again, it benefits, like, specialists. Um but, you know, it's interesting because the, the game is moving so much toward the three that, you know, a guy like Trey Mitchell who can play with his back to the basket 
and step back and shoot. Like he may have a little more room to operate in the paint. That could be good. We'll see. Um, I'd love to hear others' thoughts on this because like I just haven't given a whole lot of thought to just even just to like the spatial dimensions of how that changes the game. Um, all right. Marshmont underscore sixty three. Great friend of the show. One time guest, in fact. Previewed the BC football game last year, you'll recall. It says, where do you think we will finish in the A-10 standings? Is there any chance McCall could be fired if disaster strikes and we finish second to last or last, God forbid? Also, what's the highest you see us finishing in the standings this season if everything goes right? All right. Good questions. I don't expect us to finish better than 10th, 9th, 10th. Um, I don't expect us to finish much worse than that either. I think GW and St. Joe's with first-year coaches and losses of players are in worse spots than we are, and then there's always Fordham. So that's three right there. So that would put us at 11th, like, conservatively. And then there's a number of teams that are like, you know, like LaSalle, Second year coach lost to one of their studs. You know, I think you should finish ahead of them. Um, so, like, that would put you around 10th. But, you know, after that, there's kind of a few teams like Mason, and I'd have to look a little more closely at, you know, who lost what and who gained what. But, like, you know, even St. Louis lost a ton, and, you know, Mason lost a bunch, and um, Richmond, like, has a bunch back, but always finds a way to fuck up. So, then there's the, that that where there's that next tier. I kind of think we're probably bottom of that next tier, um, but we could finish. You know, so if things went really well, we would top those three, and then some other team would be injury plagued, and you top those four. So now you're ahead of eight teams, and we're like, you know, sixth, seventh, I guess. Um, so that would be kind of best case scenario. Would be like sixth. I mean, look, look, if everything went perfect, if Trey Mitchell is as good as as he's as as he's touted to be, you know, touted to be. And if Sean East like really comes into his own as a solid freshman point guard, a la like the St. Joe's freshman who I believe transferred. And I don't expect East to be that good. I mean, I think he's going to be quality, but I don't expect him to be like game changingly dynamic as a freshman certainly not but like if he you know just had this edge that you know you're hearing a little bit about and he really like you know made the right decisions and Keon you know like played at the highest level he was capable of playing last year you know you never know get into fifth or fourth because I I mean you can't really but look the reality is Dayton Davidson and VCU, in my opinion, are a clear first three. Bonaventure, probably four. Rody kind of in that mix. But, like, Rody could fuck up. I, I'm, I'm still not sold on Rody yet. I know that, you know, second year for a new coach. But, like, I'm not sold. So there's this chance that you have that clear cut three and probably Bonnie at four. And UMass, like, Five. That would be the that would be like the dream. Um, but 
Oh, and VCU. Wait, did I say VCU? Wait, VCU, Dayton, Davidson. Those are the three? I, yeah. All right, so you got... Yeah, so five would be, like, a fucking insane dream. Not likely. I don't think McCall gets fired unless... So, I do really genuinely believe this, that there's, it is kind of a where, like, how you finish, not where you finish deal. If you recall his first year when they had, like, eight players and were still playing really hard, I don't even remember where they finished. They probably finished, like, 10th, 11th, 12th. I I don't even remember, but it felt like a good season because they had, like, no players and they competed really hard. So... If it's a bunch of freshmen and you have some injuries and, like, you know, you're down to a bunch of freshmen and you're still competing really hard and it, they finish, like, 4-14 and 14 in the league, but, like, they had seven losses by, you know, seven points or less and, you know, they, they won two of their last four, but they – you know how it goes. Like, it, it's really, like, how it looks rather than the, ex- the re- results. And I know there's a small – camp of fans who listen to this show who are going to take that as a cop-out and be like, oh, I need a, I need a hard number. But no, I can't give you a hard number with a freshman-dominated class and a much-improved A-10 and a really hard non-conference schedule. In many ways, this schedule was like, whether intentionally or not, built to fucking kill a coach. I mean, it's just brutal. Because of the way things shook out with with the kind of the turnover in terms of the cycles with respect to uh, where the A10 is, you know, it's just a tough time to be doing a rebuild because there's a lot of decent teams here and there's a, some really good teams at the top. I mean, I think we have two games against Dayton um, and we're at Davidson. And, you know, so, and we have two against Rhodey, I believe, you know, so like, there's no, there's no, there's no forgiveness with respect to, uh, I think we're at Bonnie. I mean, there's just, there's just no forgiveness here. Um, and then we play all these really good teams in the non-conference. So, you know, I don't think he's fired unless it's like they're in last and the team doesn't give a fuck. Right? Like, that's the reality here. If the team competes hard, they give a fuck throughout the year, and you're seeing clear progress, that's fine. You know, Tyson Wheeler, an assistant the assistant at UMass now, and one of my all-time favorite, really the only Rhode Island player I've ever, like, truly loved, one of my all-time favorite competitors against UMass from the late 90s, he was talking the other day in some sort of UMass, like, promo video, a great addition to the staff by all by all accounts. And he said, you know, he came to a roadie his freshman year and they were like seven and twenty. And that core group of them, along with Catino Mobley and some others, stayed and they made the Elite Eight by his senior year. So you know, I think that's what you have to be thinking in terms of. And obviously seven and twenty is probably worse than I think they'll go this year. And the Elite Eight is probably farther than they'll go in the senior year. But, like, that's the idea. And if you see forward progress, you can't cut it off now. I mean, Kellogg had a dog shit first three years, and they broke through his fourth year. 
So I know that, you know, people probably don't want to quite give McCall just as much of the benefit of the doubt here because he's not a, a UMass alum and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, like, I don't think a program that's made one NCAA tournament in 21 years can cut ties after three unless the effort and intensity is just abject dog shit. And I don't expect that to be the case. I think McCall, uh, with his staff overhaul in particular, understood the need to mix things up from a culture standpoint internally and to get guys who are a little more committed to, you know, what he and the staff are trying to do philosophically. So I don't expect that to happen. I certainly am not rooting for that to happen. Um, but yeah, if they were three and 15 and they didn't give a fuck, then, you know, you, you might have to start from scratch, but I, I really do not foresee that. Um, I put that at a probability of like three to 5%. Oh, by the way, tonight's show brought to you by five college movers. Tremendous, tremendous moving company out of Western Mass, wherever you want to go, support the guys at Five College Movers, stress-free moving. It's a total pain in the ass to move. You want it to be stress-free, you don't have to think about it, you want a fair price, call the guys at Five College Movers. So, Jake Barnes says, Jake Barnes, UM, I believe he's a member of the uh, student fan group militia, maybe even the president. He says, any concerns about our front court depth, especially if KTM is out for the season? So, Kalea Turner-Morris, there's been word that he has some sort of big-time injury and likely will not play. Look, the reality is if you were counting on a guy who basically didn't play a whole lot in his first two years uh, to to solidify your front court depth, I, I think you were in a lot of trouble to begin with. I hope he gets healthy because one never wants a kid to be injured. But I do not expect Kalea Turner-Morris to be a you know, substantive, meaningful front court player on this team, whether he's healthy or not. And I actually have liked him at points. I think he's shown flashes, um, like teeny tiny flashes that I don't get the sense Matt has seen as much as maybe, you know, I might delusionally think are there. But you have... Baptiste, you have uh, Trey Mitchell, you have um, Cy Chapman, and you have a bunch of guys after that who are kind of like in that 6'5 to 6'8 lengthy range, like Samba, Preston, Weeks even, CJ Jackson, who can slot in in kind of a hybrid 3-4 role or, or just, you know, I mean, now we're in such this era of, like, basketball that the point is I think you have the length, especially in a press, to not worry about. It, 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 bottom line is if if, if Kalea Turner-Morris is, is your make or break in terms of front court depth, you're, you're fucked to begin with. So um, just to put it perfectly bluntly. So, no, I'm, I'm, that's not a real concern of mine. Of all the things in the offseason that um, – you know, are happening. I, I, you know, I, I wish him the best and, you know, you always want a full roster, but that's not going to, you know, be a game changer. Um, let's see what else. Mel Webster says, what chance do we have of reaching double digits in wins? I think it's 50, 50. So 
I would have to pull the schedule up. But if I'm not mistaken, um, we've got, there's like five or six, there's really five or six you should, should win in the non-conference. I think there's like Fairfield with a new coach. There's UMass Lowell, who lost their best player to transfer, I believe. There's uh, a couple just, like, real shitty teams. And then there's a few borderlines that are, like, winnable. So I'm hoping you get five or six in the non-conference. you got to open hot because once you get to that UVA game, things are real tough in terms of the schedule. Then there's, like, at Akron, which is a borderline game because it's on the road. And Akron was actually really good at home last year, so I'm hoping to get like I'm hoping to get six wins in the non-conference. But they're young, um, you know. There's a chance they could get seven. Uh, there's a chance they could get four or five. So, and then if you go into the conference, uh, Fordham we should beat, which I believe is a road game. But there's always so many UMass fans there that it's a de facto home game. But let's be honest, we haven't beat Fordham in years, so can't count your blessings. Um, St. Joe's, I think we get at home. We should beat them. GW, I believe we get at home. We should beat them. I think we play LaSalle twice. Maybe once. We should at least get one of those. We absolutely are going to, you know, get over the hump with George Mason at some point. We've lost like seven in a row all by like two points or less. We will beat them. So I've named like four or five. And then, you know, I think Travis Ford coming into the Mullen Center with a not great St. Louis team, uh, I think that's a winnable game. So there's like a bunch of winnable games in there. There's, you know, I think you definitely get five or six. I think last year we got five, right? I mean, and it was pretty ugly. Or did we end up four and 14? Fuck. Um, so, yeah, I mean... I'd give it a better than 50-50 chance that we, we get to 10 wins. Um, because I think even then we could get a playing game in Brooklyn, win there. So there's like six, seven games in conference you should win if you count the A-10 tournament, probably seven. So hoping they could get to 12 or 13. Um, and and, and there's, a, there's still a chance, right, like that you get to 15 or 16 wins because it's not likely, but a lot of the stuff about youth – it matters. Don't get me wrong. There's real concerns about, you know, lacking a pure point guard. But, like, Keon Clergo is in his fourth year of college basketball, you know, because he transferred from Memphis. He's tough. He's been through the wars. Carl Pierre is a, tr- a junior who's basically started every game for two years. DeJury Baptiste is in his fifth year. He played in the SEC. Like, you know, not an offensive, you know, wizard, but the kid, the kid's battled. Um Samba and Sai are like, to, I, I think, going to be totally different players this year and healthier. And then a lot of these freshmen, like, I believe were postgrads at Woodstock Academy or elsewhere, and like, they've competed at a really high level. So, you know, yes, there's a lot of youth, there's a lot of inexperience, but if this team competes hard and plays together, there's a lot of games that are stealable. Like, you look at Northeastern and Yale, for instance, both of which are home games both of whom are NCAA tournament teams last year. But if you go up and down those rosters, they lost 
a ton of talent. Like Yale had a kid go to the NBA who declared early, and I think they lost another senior as well. Northeastern had like three or four kids leave or, you know, either transfer or graduate. So it's not like you're playing the, the 13th seeded teams from last year. You're playing teams that were like 13 type seeds, but that lost a ton of talent and now are coming to your house. So I don't, I, I don't want to overstate the, the challenges of those games. Even like St. John's first year coach, you'll likely play them in the second game in Mohegan. They're better than you and they have like the kid Mustafa Heron who was actually a high school teammate of uh, former UMass player Turn Flowers if I'm not mistaken so he's really good they have some talent but they lost Shamori Ponds and like they're not and, and and it takes acclimating to a new coach and they're playing them in you know uh, a neutral site in November like stranger things have happened Akron on the road it's not an easy game but it's still a MAC team like and it's not exactly a hostile environment. So there are winnable games up and down the slate. Now, conversely, you could go into Fairfield for the weekend and, and just not have your shit together and lose. So I don't want to suggest that it's like a lock, but, uh, and, and the same thing in a 10 play, like we'll have to see how the conference slate shakes out in terms of who's traveling when and all that, right? Like you just know those times and it's like, all right, is Richmond coming Wait, no, so we're going to Richmond this year, right? That might be a tougher game, I think. But the point is, like, maybe you catch Rhode Island two days off a trip to Olean and they get stuck in a snowstorm, and now they're coming to Mullen Center. And, you know, so, like, there's a lot of that shit. And, and college kids are weird and have off-shooting nights. And, like, we beat Rhodey last year at home, you know? like, And that was a terrible season. So, you know, there's definitely a path forward to 12, 13, 14 wins. And then... If the chemistry is there and the guys stick together and, and 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 they're staying in the gym and you're and you're you know they're they're feeling confident and you're making shots all of a sudden like you know you get get hot and kids get delusional and that's good, you know and 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 it's like I don't want these kids to think it's impossible if if any of them are listening to this and I've had indications that sometimes they do. You guys have some talent, so you know don't listen to what we say. Just go out and fucking play. You know, see where compete hard and we'll support you. And, you know, you get the ball rolling. I think there's that chance of, of what Carvel's hockey team was in not last year, but the year prior when they were kind of like you could just tell they were turning a corner and they went like close to 500. They won that series against Vermont in the postseason at Mullins. And and you kind of knew that we were headed to a greener pastures the following year. Like that's sort of where you hope this team is headed. And it's not inconceivable to believe that they could get there, particularly with all the overhaul of the staff and roster. Um, let's see what else I got here. It's a good episode, I think so far. Um, let's see here. Uh, all right, so let's see. The next question, McKinney, McKinney 2019, Stats McKinney, as we call him in the uh, Twitter world. He says, Woodstock, referring to the prep school in Connecticut, not the music festival of uh, five decades ago, says, Woodstock was a top prep under Bergeron. This is, of course, Tony Bergeron, the new assistant coach at UMass one of three. 
number two nationally back in January. He's already scouted and worked with these kids because he's referring to, in case you have not been following along, there are three, now actually four Woodstock kids on the roster because they just signed this kid, Debaji Walker, who was, was going to transfer from uh, from Cleveland State, son of Samaki Walker, a former NBA fame, and who had a solid freshman year at uh Cleveland State, and although I'm wondering if they're going to get, how they're going to, is he going to get a scholarship? I don't know. I don't know if that there's a scholarship available because he's got to sit out. Maybe his, maybe his old man's got some money from his playing days. I hope because he sounds really good, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do at UMass. But anyway, he's already scouted and worked with these kids, and former teammates could help the culture. All good things in my book. But are there concerns for overutilization of this pipeline? In other words, bias in favor of Woodstock Academy. Yeah, I don't really buy this. There's a small faction of people on Twitter and stuff who've sort of bantered about this. I'm not really buying it. It's like, first of all, there's this concern that like, okay, Bergeron coached there and now his well at the school, uh, you know, his his talent well is going to dry up because he's going to have taken three or four of these kids here and then, you know, he's no longer connected to the school. So where is he going to get other kids? Well, that ignores Bergeron's uh, – well, first of all, it assumes that Bergeron is, like, only there to recruit Woodstock kids. Not really true. Secondly, I think he led on the recruit on the recruiting of Colton Mitchell, who was not a Woodstock kid, maybe a Sean East, who was not a Woodstock kid, and maybe CJ – I don't know if he led on CJ Jackson. I'm not sure. But, again, there's, there's those guys are not Woodstock kids. But also, um, Bergeron is – has a, a history at a number of schools. He coached at a powerhouse in New York for a few years, Wings Academy. He coached at, like, Commonwealth Academy. I forget where that was, but McDuffie and Springfield or wherever they're located now. Maybe they're in, like, Granby, Mass. I don't even know where they are. But he's coached a bunch of places and pretty much won everywhere. So his – and, and I think he's been around, like, the five-star camp scene. So it's not as if his only recruiting pipeline is to the prep school he coached at most recently for two years. I mean, he, you know, that's not quite how these things work. I think that betrays a certain ignorance about the process. I don't mean to knock you, McKinney, in particular. I'm just saying in general, I think there's a perception that it's like, okay, you you take all the kids from the school you're at and then you're done recruiting forever. No, it's like he's been around the game 20 some odd years. He And also he's widely regarded as a pretty good X's and O's guy, particularly on defense. And by the way, a lot of schools now are going toward that defensive coordinator style model in basketball. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he slots into that role as well. So he's not just a, a recruiter who's tapping, you know, connections from his prior prep school. That being said, I mean, you know, like you may hit it big in the first year because you still have some of those ties. And, and, and you know, you may have to work a little harder or get a little more creative in the in other years. But you know, my sense of Bergeron is that he's kind of a hoops junkie and he he's got, you know, people. And if you if you look at his Twitter feed, he, he'll banter with, you know, like California types. And, you know, he's got connections all over the place. So uh, I'm I'm really not concerned that, you know, that well is going to run dry or, or that it even matters uh, if it does, because I think. And, and look, you also have Tyson Wheeler and Lucius Jackson, who. So Jackson, the uh, Lucius Jordan, um, the other assistant who was on um, on ops and an ops role in the last couple of years, 
you know, he's very well connected in the Albany area where there's a ton of talent. And, uh, and um, you know, Tyson Wheeler, he's been a college assistant for several years. And, you know, he's, he's from New London, Connecticut and knows the Providence scene and whatever. So, you know, you can't – I think it's just a little myopic to think um, in terms of – you know, to think of 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 this in 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 purely like Tony Bergeron's Woodstock ties, it it, it just you got to respect the other guys on staff too, and you got to also realize that and Matt McCall recruits too, like you know, so and, and you got to realize that Bergeron knows people outside of you know one prep school in Connecticut. Uh, Cam Leggy. Cam nine two one nine says, "What is considered success this year? Above five hundred in a ten, a couple big wins. Success for me, and I, it's so fucking cliche and trite. I'm sorry, but success for me is consistently competing hard, basically every night out. Yeah, you're gonna have a couple off nights, and you're gonna have some off shooting nights, but if the effort is there ninety percent of the time, and there's progress, right? Like it's not. I mean, I'm not naive. If you you trot out a bunch of high school kids and they run their, you know, they, they run their asses off every night and they lose by 40. That's not success. But I believe that this t- success is, I mean, real success would be 500 or above. That would be like a immensely successful year. But 13, 14, 15 wins. And I say 15 because I think, you know, that'd be like, there, there's like 32 games if you count conference tournament minimum. So like 15, 17, that would be successful. Um, like there's a crazy part of me. Is the year a success if they go 10 and 22, beat Virginia and have a ton of close losses where they compete really hard in the in the A-10? It's like no, but there's kind of this crazy case to be made. Like we beat the defending national champs saw signs of life throughout the year and had a bunch of tough losses. There's kind of something like more endearing about that than going, you know, (laughs) 14 and 18 or 15 and 17 and having like no great wins. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll change my tune later in the year, but you know, there there are a bunch of shots, right? Like Rutgers is going to be good this year. They play at Rutgers the day after Thanksgiving. You might sneak up on them, you know, like that's a game. You never know. Like that would be a thrill. Um, You get South Carolina at the Mullen Center. That would be a thrill. Um, Yale and Northeastern, both NCAA tournament teams, steal one of those games. At Harvard, who some people think is going to be in the top 25, but at Harvard is going to be an entirely pro UMass crowd. Maybe you steal that one. I think you're right now that you're saying this. For momentum's sake moving forward, you got to get one, ideally two in the non-conference. And that includes like, like, all right, the top tier games in the non-conference. I'm not even going to put Yale and Northeastern in them. Both those games are tough, but they're not like the top tier. The top tier non-conference games are Virginia in Mohegan, South Carolina at home, Rutgers on the road. An improved good Rutgers team that some people think could be like fringe tournament bound. And then the second game, Mohegan, which is either Arizona State or St. John. So that's so two Mohegan, Rutgers, South Carolina or Harvard. Those five. I think in a certain way, now that we're talking about this, you do have to steal one of those. Like 
and, and, and people are going to say, oh, that's a high expectation, whatever. Like, no, shit happens. Like, we sucked two years ago when we played Harvard, and we damn near won that game. So, you know, one of those, or at least, like, really close in one of those, and then definitely take, like, one of the Yale Northeastern. Yeah, that would give you some nice momentum. And then in the non in the conference play, VCU, Davidson, and uh, Dayton, all of whom could be in the mix in the top 25, if you get Dayton at home, we've had great history with them last year notwithstanding. That would be really fun to steal one. Uh, VCU, you know, maybe they come in. It's a Friday night. It's an ESPN game or something. It's packed out, and you steal one because they're traveling back from Olean. Like, yeah, I think one or two big wins – um, would be really helpful for this team's development. And, and it, it's not out of the question. Carl Pierre can have a 30-point night. You know, Trey Mitchell can dominate some team down low one night. You know, like, I really do believe that. It's not as if this team is devoid of talent. They're not. So, like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't expect consistent, like, dynamism, but we should expect consistently hard efforts and if you consistently compete you're gonna steal a game or two like you should and look if you if you lose three or four of those all by two points I'll be thrilled too in the in the long term you know but it would be really nice I think kind of from uh you know moving the 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 flag forward moving the football forward here to to get a a signature win or two Um, I think that's a really good point you make um, but above 500 in A-10 would be colossally successful. And I don't expect that because the a 10s really good. Eight and 10 in the a 10, I would think would be an, a tremendous achievement. I mean, remember, this is a freshman dominated group in a very tough league this year. Like this group in last year's league, I think is maybe a seven, eight win team, maybe nine. If, if everything were to break well, this is a tough a 10. And that's just the, 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 the reality of it. Um, Distracted Diner says, if I'm an avid fan who's, parenthetical, allegedly been living under a rock for the whole offseason, catch me up as succinctly as you can and briefly, broadly, what to expect. Here, I'm going to set my timer for one minute and do a little ex- experiment here to see if I can catch him up on the offseason in one minute. It's like before a new season of a television show when they, uh, you know, like show all the shit that happened in the prior season. All right, I'm starting my alarm now. Okay, after the team suffered uh, its 21st loss in mid-March, Matt McCall went about completely rebuilding the program. He got rid of all three assistants, brought in an entirely new staff consisting of Tony Bergeron, the high school, highly regarded high school coach from Woodstock Academy, uh, and his star recruit, um, uh, Trey Mitchell, as well as TJ Weeks, son of Tyrone Weeks, who also played for him, and Preston Santos was already signed. Then the other assistants included Tyson Wheeler, a former Rhode Island star, and Lucius Jordan, from the ops staff got promoted up. They then signed three other kids, Colton Mitchell, a freshman point guard, excuse me, a point guard from Florida, CJ Jackson, I forget where he's from, I think Georgia, who's sort of a 6'6 slashing. Ugh, fuck. 
All right, let's try to do another minute. C.J. Jackson, Colton Mitchell, a point guard from Florida, and Sean East, a lefty with an edge from South Carolina. That completed the roster as six or seven players who otherwise would have returned left. Those that left who were noteworthy include Luan Pipkins, of course, but there was no surprise there. He's at Providence. Jonathan Laurent is now at Oklahoma State, his third school in his collegiate career. Unique McLean and others went to low D1s or D2, or in the case of Jalen Franklin, the walk-on to top-tier D3 College of Wooster in Ohio. The team is in the Virgin Islands now after a very successful summer on campus, and that's your offseason. All right, seven seconds to spare, so it took me like 153. Uh, All right, hope that was helpful. And let's go back to the mailbag, because I asked for questions. Those are questions from last night. Then I um, asked for questions tonight, and this is what I got. We're on hour two now of this episode. Didn't really quite think it would go that long, and I'm fucking starving because all I've had is those potato chips. Also, my Twitter is not loading, so that could be the end of this. Let me turn my wireless off here. Um, let's see. So, in terms of the... Alright, here's what we got. Tavar Davis says... What a T Davis 418, good follow. This is what conference you anticipate football joining and when? Uh, go to our entire um, realignment episode with Bob McGovern two episodes ago. I don't know. I, I just don't know. I really don't know. Jack Envelopes says, when are they going to have a football home opener versus a non-dog shit opponent? Not in the foreseeable future. I mean, the way things shake out being an independent and the fact that you don't have a viable stadium to host a meaningful opponent and the fact that, actually, wait, next year, Oh, no, next year I think they open at UConn, I was going to say, because that could be a viable home opener. Um, And if you ever let them use Gillette, then there'd be, for a home opener, there's a chance you get somebody decent, but I don't see it happening. Just the the economics of it, I don't see it happening. Uh, Sully, our friend Sully, my good name, Dayton fan, he wants to know when I'm going to go out there and see him for beers at a Dayton game. It's not going to be this year, I'll be honest, probably won't be this year, but I asked him if he's going to come to Brooklyn, and he says he's gonna. it's going to happen this year, and so I'm excited to see him, because I'll definitely be there. Um, Mike LoCapo asks the same question every week, are we too good for the Mac? Uh, go to our realignment episode, I don't really feel like rehashing that. Jason Levitt, J. Levitt 08, says, thoughts on the rotation? How deep do we go this year? How many freshmen get meaningful minutes? So we've kind of touched on this throughout the episode, but every freshman on this roster, and there are six, maybe seven of them, I think six, will get an opportunity to play. Uh, Weeks and Mitchell, I think, at the outset, and, and then East will play the most. Bugs is said to have impressed a lot more than many people were expecting and, and is going to get some minutes, but he just suffered an injury, so that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And 
Colton Mitchell and CJ, I'm told, are both very talented. CJ, um, maybe not quite there physically, but could get there. And Colton uh, maybe has to work on his shot. That was the word on the scattering report on him. But I saw a lot of nice flashes from him and his tape and just in watching some of the you know little things you'll see on social media. So all of these guys will get a shot, um, particularly the guys you know at the point guard spot because we don't return a sort of traditional pure point guard. So East, Bugs, and Mitchell respectively, Colton Mitchell, will all get you know their opportunity. And then Preston Santos, wait, so are there seven freshmen? Those are three. And then Preston Santos, C.J. Jackson, Weeks, and Trey Mitchell. Wow. Yeah, so all of them, but I think if I were to rank in minutes right now, what I what I would guess is Trey Mitchell one, um weeks two, East three, and the other four I think will it will be totally dependent on like who's playing well when and what combinations work because like bugs can get to the rim colton mitchell can get to the rim and defend and he's pretty strong so you know cj has a a length that could be really useful on the press so they all do different things but none of them other you know other than the and then Preston Santos. Uh, Preston Santos is probably four. I think he'll get substantive minutes because he's going to be meaningful on the press. And he's athletic and he, he defends well. So he's four. But even, like, other than Trey Mitchell, I think even Weeks, like, the other six guys will get anywhere from four to 24 minutes. and it will, And it could be real close where it's, like, a bunch of those guys are averaging 10, 11, 12, or, you know, in the 9 to 15 range. So they're all going to get a chance. Um, I think a lot of it for them, other than Trey and East, just by virtue of the fact that they need a one so a guy at the one so much, and he appears to be the most game-ready right now, other than those two, I think it's really going to be dependent on sort of, like, who's bringing the most to the press, who can pick up the offense, who can throw their body in play, who can do things. It's not it's not even just a talent thing, right? Like, Because you have enough talent in terms of the returnees and, and Trey. It's a matter of who is game ready. And that doesn't just mean like who's the most athletic or, you know, it's like who's going to take a charge when you need him to? Who's going to, you know, like lunge forward and get that, you know, 50-50 ball that changes the complexion of a basketball game. So I think a lot of it will come down to some of those things. And and that may that may vary throughout the year. I mean, I do not imagine the the that there'll be like a solidified rotation, you know, until February. You know, because first of all, I think Matt was probably a little too early in solidifying that rotation last year. And it, it maybe some guys weren't so hungry. And I think maybe he's learned his lesson there. I think a guy like Kieran Hayward or some guys who, you know, unique McLean who kind of like languished on the bench for a while and then were pressed into service late in the year and maybe weren't as sharp when they finally got their chance. 
I think Matt probably learned a little bit about that. And, you know, I think he probably gave too many minutes to Laurent uh, at times early and kind of. So I think he's going to keep these guys on their toes. you got to realize, like, coaches are human beings. They evolve, too. You know, I think Matt probably learned a tremendous amount from that experience. And so I would imagine that the kind of seven through 12 guys on the team, that that is not going to be solidified and definitive until very late in the year, if at all. Um, Because, look, freshmen improve a lot throughout the course of the year, and fatigue is a factor. So there are kids who, like, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on in the weight room right now. Like, which kid is in there right now doing the extra shit? Yeah, you know, you see social media, they're all doing the extra shit. But there's a kid, and I don't know who it is, one or two or whatever, who are doing just a little bit more and that maybe they're going to be the guy who's ready in February or whatever. You know, maybe a guy busts his knee and, you know, it's like injuries are going to determine that too. But I think the rotation, particularly with the freshmen, um, is going to evolve. And so to say how many are going to get meaningful minutes, at some point this year, I believe all seven will play in a game, will play at least 10 minutes in a game. Is that meaningful? I don't know. Um, I would say all at least five of them will play 15 minutes in a game and at least four of them will play 20 minutes in a game probably at least four of them will play 25 minutes a game so yeah a lot of guys are gonna get minutes but that could change throughout the course of the year um eric friedlander efreed 97 what is your drink of choice for the Rutgers tailgate? It's a great question, and I'm figuring out now exactly when I'm going to get there because I typically work till like, right around when kickoff starts. I go in a little late, and I work late, and I'm trying to figure that out now. So I'm trying to get there, like, I'm trying to get out of work around 4 or 5 and then uh, get there by, like, 6. i got to figure out exactly how I'm going to get there because the train and blah, blah, blah. Um... I'm not, like, a beer snob at all. Um, I'm not really a drink snob, period. I'll kind of have, like, whatever's around. I'm not a vodka guy, but, like, I'm trying to think of, like, tailgate fare. You know, a UMass fan once made fun of me at a bar for being into whiskey sours. Um, I'm not going to apologize for that, you know? Like, I transcend um, traditional characterizations of masculinity and femininity with respect to my drink choices. If I want a dynamic pina colada and there's a blender there, you sh- I'm sure shit going to have it. So, Sitch, if you have a blender and access to an outlet and you're cooking up frozen drinks and you throw in a little p- slice of pineapple, daiquiri, colada, or otherwise, I'm consuming it aggressively, just so, just a forewarning. If we're talking beers, like, you know, a nice wheat beer, something in the Allagash white realm, but I don't know beer. I can already hear Fight Mass and the and the Fear, Fear the Triangle snobs out there, the beer snobs out there just scoffing at me, just fucking aggressively condemning my, my choice of booze. Um, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a gourmand, not a gourmet. True story. In college, I was... Actually, this is, like, not a great story. It's a kind of bad one to admit. I, I sort of dated this girl sophomore year of college. Very attractive. Very affluent. Which is not good, by the way. Warning. Don't marry a girl who's from too... I didn't marry this girl. Just caveat. Who's from too affluent 
a family. Because you'll just be competing with them. You'll be like, you don't know fully how to act. But anyway, her um, grandfather, it's a Jersey-based family. I don't want to give too much information away, but he was a big real estate guy. And after we split, like, beginning of second semester, we sort of feigned friendship, and it was one of those weird ones. I was probably too young and dumb, and I probably thought I had a chance of getting back together with her in some capacity. We basically went as friends. This has a, this, There's a point to the story. Basically, went as friends. I accompanied her to her grandfather's estate, which was literally the house next door or two doors or three doors down from the house where the film Wedding Crashers was filmed on the... Uh, Eastern Shore of Maryland. Beautiful area. Guy had a sailboat, the whole nine. And I was given, like, a fucking wing of this house. But we didn't sleep in the same room together. And in retrospect, it was like, wow. Like, what was I thinking? Like, this girl wasn't even interested in me at this point. Like, and why was she even bringing me? Just for my dynamic conversational talents? I, I don't, I don't know, man. But, like, in retrospect, man... To be 20 again, like, I was fucking dumb. But the point of that is, on the trip, the grandfather, the real estate mogul, said a line to me that I've bro- I've broken out ever since. He said, he said, uh, we were eating, and we, he, we, it was this fucking awesome, like, filet mignon and crab cakes, and we're just crushing it. And actually, that was where I was introduced to whiskey sours, too. See, you spend a little time around, like, really rich people, and it fucks you up. But anyway, we're on the, um, we're on the Eastern Shore, and, and, he, and we're eating, and, I, and I, I said something like, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, something about food, and he said, you know, you and I, we're, he's like, my granddaughter, my wife, he had a wife, like, 22 years as junior, second wife, obviously, always is, and he's like, you and I, he's like, we're, he's like, our girls here, he's like, are gourmets. We're gourmands. And basically what he meant was like, we just crush anything in front of us and we don't have the sorts of discerning taste they do. But now, anytime I'm insecure about my lack of like beer knowledge, because that's a realm of, of uh, cuisine, well, it's not cuisine, but of beverages that I don't know a whole lot about, I'll break out a line like that. I'll break it out like whenever I need to. I'm just like, oh, well. <laughs> I'm more of a gourmand, not a gourmet. If I'm ever around like a sophisticated crowd that knows something about food that I don't. Other line he dropped on that trip, which I will never forget, and I've definitely busted it out in assorted context, is um, he was talking about Nantucket and how it had become like, you know, so expensive, but like he left because, you know, he was sort of, well, I don't even know if he goes, you know, used to be a place to be, to, to get away. Now it's a place to be seen. So I like breaking out that line, like when you're trying to sound really classy. Just, just a couple little tips for you, uh, for, for anyone uh, who wants to sort of know how to engage with the uh, shithead uh, one percenters of the world. He's a nice guy. I mean, you know, like a lot of times, like, that sort of affluence, you know, you can't even help, you can't even help it. It's just it's what you are. But, you know, it's, uh, it's not my people. Put it that way. I mean, like, I like to be around people who are generous, and that's great, but, like, there's an there's an excessive point. This is the 0.1%, if you will. Gosh, I hope she never finds this episode. Oh, she had a kid. We haven't talked in years. Um, 
Let's see. That's about it. What a way to end it. So, yeah, get the blender. If you're coming to Rutgers, holler at us. Slide in the DMs. Curry Hicks Sage on Twitter. And in the words of the once co-host and sporadic contributor, Andrew Kalagi, a.k.a. A. Kalagi, for longtime listeners, love you. We out. <laughs>